listening to Soul Knox Podcast, and I'm your host, Carl Icara, and this is episode number 32, and um, this week on the podcast, uh, Mike Hill is joining me, and he and uh, joined me, and he and I are kicking off a, uh, a series that'll be spanning across both uh, Soul Knox as well as Everything Went Black. Uh, uh, this week, uh, Mike issued a kind of pilot on Everything Went Black, kind of explaining the thing and kind of going over a little bit of the basics of car of the subject and what the subject is. Um, this is Carl Edward Wagner. So, uh, yet the series is called Darkness Weaves, and um, this is the first episode of this. So this is essentially a journey through the incredible work of Carl Edward Wagner. Um, we're starting off with uh, traveling through the um, recently republished book In a Lonely Place. So um, yeah, if you uh, are interested, uh, go pick up this um, this book and read stories. I'd recommend reading the story that we're covering today before you listen, because we obviously go through the entire story beat by beat, pretty much. And the story that we're covering today is the first one in the book, which is called In the Pines. So yeah, um, I, uh, it's a great first episode to kick us off. The next one will be on Everything Went Black and will be called, uh, will be the story called Where the Summer Ends. Um, which is, so yeah, I'm looking forward to continuing this on. Um, I think I think we're gonna do every month. We'll see. Uh, you know, maybe we'll do more. Uh, maybe we'll do less. We'll see. I uh, I'm kind of thinking maybe to try to do some do Eldritch Tales on the months that um, Darkness Weaves is on. Everything went black. So we'll see how that goes. Because um, I know Mike and I were also talking about covering uh, some other stuff like the Wendigo. So, um, yeah, we'll see how everything flows out, but uh, definitely you're all going to get a lot more content from both me and Mike on both Solnox and uh, Everything Went Black. Um, so I'm really happy to be kicking this off today. Um, in the Pines is an amazing story, and uh, yeah, I think this is a pretty, pretty good episode as well. Um, yeah. I wanted to talk with him about Skin and Rink, and we finished talking about the story, but we didn't get a chance because we had to start a little bit late, so we didn't have as long to 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 shoot the shit. But uh, yeah, oh, uh, hopefully the next time we do something together, he and I can talk about Skin and Rink, as I really loved that store that movie. Um, yeah, so that's what's going on this week. What else? I just got uh, in the mail. I just got pictures of the apocalypse, the new book um, by Thomas Ligotti, printed by Chiroptera Press. Uh, if, uh, yep, it's the first new Thomas Ligotti collection um, in a long time, although it's um, a collection of poetry, much like his previous book, um, Death Poems, which I believe is his previous one. Um which I also own, and uh, yeah, his poetry is great. Um, the, the book is beautiful, and it has amazing illustrations in it. Like it's a, definitely a work of art. The one I got came with a little like pamphlet that had like a little mini interview of Thomas Ligotti and the artist. So that's pretty cool. Uh, highly recommended. Very much worth the money. Um, and I uh, can't wait for them to release the next release with uh, Noctuary and um, I forget what the other other collection that's going to be in the volume 
but I can't wait. I've been, you know, really jonesing to read some more Lugati stories. And, uh, you know, I'm always hoping and hopeful that Lugati will return to fiction as well as his uh, poetry. But we shall see. You know, it's Thomas Lugati writing a new short story collection is kind of like uh, David Lynch releasing a new movie or something like that. You know, David Lynch or John Carpenter or somebody. You know, last year we got... Um, we got um, another new movie from David Cronenberg, which was surprising. A new, like, uh, buddy horror movie. Uh, so you never know. Anything could happen. Uh, you know, even from people who uh, seem to have given up on uh, certain types of, of things. Like, you know, you never know when they'll change their mind, you know. So, um, aside from that... Uh, been watching a lot of Hammer Horror. I watched Twins of Evil uh, and some other stuff like that. Uh, you know, just like been on a real like uh, 70s, 60s and 70s like gothic horror kind of kind of vibe recently. And um, I'm sure that's going to keep on going for a little while, you know. Uh, but yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed the episode this week. Um, before we get into it, I want to shout out the Horsemen of the Podcast Apocalypse. <clears throat> on Mondays, we have Werewolf 666 with Brandon Legion. On Tuesdays, we have the best extreme metal podcast out there, Into the Necrosphere with Jackie Schmidt. 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 <laughs> on uh, Wednesdays, we got Everything Went Black with Mike Hill. On Thursdays, we have uh, Necromaniacs with Mike Hill, Mike Scandato, and Jeff Kashid. And then on, uh, let's see, at intermittent times, a kind of unofficial horseman is Iblis Manifestations uh, from Cheyenne of Trivax. So, yes, go and uh, support everybody. Um, and uh, give everybody a follow on uh, social media. And on uh, whatever your podcasting platform is, I need to get the podcast up on Apple. I've been having a few people uh, complaining about that. That's not on Apple, so that'll happen. But we're on everything else here. You know, give us a follow. Give them a follow. Um, you can follow me at uh, on, on social media at Carl Hikara, K-A-R-L-H-A-I-K-A-R-A, or uh, Denver Underground Radio. And, um, yeah, Denver Underground Radio is the, uh, is an online radio station that I run, um, and, uh, we have, uh, shows on, uh, my shows on Tuesday, well, so we've got Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, all those shows start at the same time, which is, uh, 9 p.m. Mountain Standard Time, 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Tuesdays we have Darklands, which is my show, which is primarily extreme metal and dark ambient, stuff like that. On uh, Thursdays, there's the Upstairs Room, which is primarily dark wave, post-punk, industrial, all that kind of stuff. Um, Fridays we have uh, Deviation, which is my friend's show, which uh, goes from post-punk, synth, pop, rap and hip-hop, all kinds of stuff. And then Sundays we have a show that starts at, I think, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, which is called uh, um, Nutmeg Junction and the Broken Thread from Kurt in Connecticut. So yeah, we got stuff going on. You can tune in live and check it out. 
if you want to. Then you can follow and find all the playlists as well as all the posts about the podcast on Denver Underground Radio on Instagram. So yeah, give everything a follow. And um, before I get into the episode, I uh, do want to say that I apologize because uh, Mike had recorded a uh, a reading from the story that uh, I did not download in time for the, uh, the, the link expired and Unfortunately, he couldn't send me it again before I had to put the episode up. So I'm going to do my best to do a, a reading. Um, yeah, I don't like that because I think Mike does readings much better than I do. And um, I really was like wanted to, to have his reading in this. So, um, yeah, but um, I guess it happens, you know, when you're working like, you know, 70 hours a week. Sometimes you forget stuff, you know what I mean? <laughs> uh Alright, so uh, we're going to get into this, and we're going to start off with a song um, which uh, is referenced in the story. Um, and that song is, uh, this this version of it is by Mark Lanigan. And the song is Where Did You Sleep Last Night, which was originally entitled In the Pines. And is, well, I think Mike said, one of the oldest, uh, the oldest, one oldest songs that we know of in the uh, United States when it comes to folk songs. Uh, but no one knows who wrote it. Very interesting. But yeah, so we're going to st- play that song and get into th- into the, the, the episode. Thank you for listening. Hope you guys enjoy. Hail Satan.
There is an atmosphere of unutterable loneliness that haunts any ruin, a feeling particularly evident in those places once given over to the lighter emotions. Wander over the littered grounds of an abandoned amusement park and feel the overwhelming presence of desolation. Flimsy booths with awnings tattered in the wind, rotting heaps of sun-bleached paper mache. Crumbling at timbers of a roller coaster thrust upward through the jungle of weeds and debris, like ribs of some titanic unburied skeleton. The wind blows colder there. The sun seems dimmer. Ghosts of laughter, lost strains of raucous music can almost be heard. Speak and your voice sounds strangely loud and yet curiously smothered. Or to were a neglected formal garden with its termite-riddled arbors and gazebo. The lily pond is drained, choked with weeds and refuse. Only a few flowers or shrubs poke miserably through the rank undergrowth. Dense clots of weeds and vines overrun the paths and statuary. Here and there a shrub or rambling rose has grown into a wild, misshapen tangle. The flowers offer anemic blooms where no hand gathers, no eye admires, no birds sing in that uncanny hush. Such places are lairs of inconsolable gloom. After the brighter spirits have departed, shadows of despair and oppression assume their place. The area has been drained of its ability to support any further light emotion. And now, like weeds on eroded soil, only the darker sentiments can take root and flourish. These places are best left to the loneliness of their grief. All right, so we're kicking off our, our epic journey through Carl Edward Wagner today. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, man. And um, I got to say, reading, rereading, this story again it just gets better i have to say yeah it's definitely a, a different experience the second time you read it which i think we can get in we'll get into like um the first time i read it it did not go where i thought it was going at all it kind of, kind of took like a different turn and then when you read it a second time you're like oh okay it was like telegraphing it the whole time you know what i mean <laughs> yeah yeah and there's also some uh and we'll get into this too, but there's there's a a lot of uh, subtleties that are not obvious when the first time you read it either, you know. And um, when you read it again, you get like this, uh, you pick up on it a little bit differently, and you see things differently. And that's what I like about it. And having read through all this entire this, all the stories in this volume, there's a lot of that stuff that uh, all the other stories. There's like second and third readings you pick up on all these subtleties and man i gotta say wagner really is out of all the writers within the weird fiction canon it's somebody that needs to be back in print man don't you agree yeah i definitely agree i mean um you know this is first time i'm reading like most of these stories with the exception of sticks and river and night's dreaming so it's like uh, and I already knew from those stories that, that he was a sick writer, you know, but getting into some of his other stories, finally, it's like real revelation where you're like, yeah, this guy was is easily 
I mean, I would see him as being one of the most important weird fiction writers of his generation. You know what I mean? Of that era, like he's like in he's like in that era between the original weird fiction authors, you know, and you know from Weird Tales era. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it's like him and Ramsey Campbell and a couple others were the guys who picked up the baton, you know, in the seventies and like carried it forward, right? You know, and so it's like. Out of a lot of those guys, I mean, I guess you, like, I'm not sure who, I mean, I guess you maybe consider, like, um, like yeah, like Ramsey Campbell, Carl Edward Wagner. I'm trying to think of some of the other authors from that generation, you know, that, I guess even Stephen King to a certain extent, you know, like, they're the guys who started in the 70s, you know what I mean? Yeah, Stephen King actually is kind of a sneaky, is sneakily a weird fiction writer. Like, there's tons of Lovecraftian influences on his work too you know I mean some of it was more Lovecraftian work came much later like with revival and all that but uh but there's like um short stories that one that takes place in England uh Hobbs End I think it's called uh yeah um I think there's no, Hobbs End is yeah. the uh, is Hobbs End is the one from uh, In the Mouth of Madness. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. No, I, I, there, there's another. There's a story that's uh, uh, just escaping me, of course, right now. But it's like there's there's a uh, a story that takes place in England that's like very Lovecraftian. Um, I can't remember. Anyway, can't remember the one is yeah. I mean, he, even um, what's that one story that came? It was in Graveyard Shift that sets up Salem's Lot. Oh, Jerusalem's Lot. Yeah, they yeah, talk Jerusalem's about. The the mysterious vermis, the vermin, like the book and all that sort of stuff. There's like all this like references to like Lovecraft and everything in that. Yeah, like uh, and that happens again in Revival where he references the vermis mysterious, like the um, which I think was um, the Book of the Worm was uh, Robert Block's creation. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So. Yeah, but yeah, so I think I mean, and he definitely, uh, as well as Wagner, obviously. Uh, grew up reading, you know, uh, all these old like weird, weird tales, magazines he found, and and everything. And so I think that 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 plays a part in Wagner as well. Like, um, and they definitely share that similar language. I think the difference between say Wagner and um, um, King is that I think King kind of took this into a direction that maybe is a little bit more commercial. You know, a little bit. Um, more approachable for bigger for more for a bigger audience you know what i mean sure but um but even with like something like salem's lot i mean um there's like a lot in that book itself that's very dark and brutal and wouldn't pretty similar to something wagner would come up with but i feel like and uh, both of them also do a lot of stuff where they're more rooted in the um the emotions of the character of the characters you know like so you could definitely see some parallels with particularly King's like short story work and Wagner's short story work, you know? No, definitely. Yeah. So for, uh, for today's episode, we're, we're going to be doing in the pines, which is uh, coincidentally the first story in the, um, in a, in a lonely place, uh, short story collection. Yeah. And, which... uh, there, there's, I don't know the exact, uh, publishing history of this. I know that, it was published in a in like a, a, a periodical in 1973, and then the In a Lonely Place was originally published in 1983. Yeah, um, 
Yeah, because I think uh, we're just going to, through this kind of sub-series, the um, Darkness Weaves one, which came of that name, I think we're just going to work through the stories in the order that they're in, uh, in a lonely place. We're going to start there. Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of like, we're going to be trading off episodes uh, between uh, Soul Knox and everything went black. So it's like this... Uh, split seven inch version of this uh of a podcast i guess you know, <laughs> you, know, doing, you know we'll be trading off between our both podcasts yeah i was also thinking like i said yesterday i was like it's kind of like in a comic book series where you got like i don't know like a few years ago you had that king in black where it's like oh, this is king of black and spider-man this is king black and venom you know what I mean? <laughs> or whatever <laughs> so the um, um yeah so and definitely Everybody should go uh, go on Amazon and order in a lonely place. You know, if you're interested, like be sure to like buy this book and support. Because I think if this book, I think if the book goes, does well, I think they'll probably print more Wagner books. You know what I mean? Yeah, you know, I really hope so, man. And and the funny thing too is like Wagner seems to be conspicuously left out of the conversation when the other sort of enthusiasts in weird fiction. You know, I mean, people don't seem to be as hyped up on him, even though he's such a great author. And uh, and uh, it's just a it's a crime, really. It's kind of weird. I, I wonder if, what why that is. You know, like um, like I feel like Ramsey Campbell is a lot more talked about even than say Wagner. You know what I mean? And uh, I'm not sure why that is. Uh, maybe it's because Ramsey Campbell's still alive, so he's able to protect his legacy better and get everything reprinted yeah. and that might be the problem as a wagner maybe his estate hasn't been as like um good about keeping his his name in print and you know what i mean well also yeah the, the foreword to this book is written by ramsey campbell which is definitely a nice uh a nice thing you know to have as part of this volume yeah um i'm friends on facebook with um Don Webb, who used to be the head of the Temple of Set, and he's a weird fiction author as well. And he's friends with like Ramsey Campbell and all that stuff. And I remember he posted about how he thought that Wagner should be more in print and everything. And there was a lot of people agreeing with that. And it was kind of funny that soon after that, this book came in print. So, <laughs> well, you know what's what's interesting is is um you know there's that Kadabra Records uh, that they do the audiobook versions like on vinyl. You know, and they'll even do like seven inches. Like they have, um, but they don't, once again, conspicuously, Carl Edward Wagner is left out of that canon of work that they're cataloging, that they're doing. And, um, you know, and everything went black a few weeks ago. I had uh, uh, Chris uh, Bozzone on, who is one of the composers and a guy that helps produce that stuff too. And, you know, they have like Legati, they have, uh, you know, of course, Lovecraft. Uh, there's some other non-weird fiction regular horror writers they do no wagner <laughs> yeah yeah i think i do think that a lot of it probably does come down to the fact that he just hasn't been in print for so for so long you know what i mean i think yeah. it's kind of like for i think um you know when your when your books are almost impossible to get as hard for people to really like read read your stories you know or if it's only available on like some like can you know a kindle edition or something you know so i don't know i mean it, yeah there might be some other like something else going on that we don't we don't know like why he's like not 
known as well but i mean he definitely should be i mean he's very important like and the more you dig into it the more important he is for for weird fiction you know and for the reprinting of you know like we talked about before like all of howard's original writings and all kinds of stuff like you know he was really important for the pop repopulization of um of all this of all the stuff from the first half of 20th century and the second half you know and so also, let's, uh, let's get into the story a little bit then, I guess. We start talking about the some of the beats of the story and the main characters and just our, our impressions of it. Yeah, so um starts off with the prologue, which um, I'll have you, you re- recorded um, a, um, a reading for it, which will, people have probably already heard in the episode, because I'll post but that first. And... Um, I fucking love this prologue, though. Like, I feel like it's like the manifesto for the story. You know what I mean? Absolutely, and and it's um, it has nothing to do with the actual story, like the actual narrative. It's like this page of exposition that really is not related at all to the narrative, but it just basically sets up this tone of uh, loss and loneliness and this brooding empty feeling which goes hand in hand with the actual story it sets up it sets up the themes the theme for the story and i feel like a theme that probably plays through a lot of wagner's writings as a whole you know like and the kind of desolate desolation that he's um that he's talking about in here you know and that's in that prologue really definitely has a lot to do with the story and the idea of uh in the pines but yeah it doesn't directly um relate to the story itself you know well one of those themes which is uh reflecting a lot of the other stories that he's done is the idea of uh, a place that's in ruins that used to be that at one point in the past was like this very different opulent sort of place and it's funny i i just read uh a cane story where um the same theme comes up where Kane is in this ruin with like the people that he's with. And he's talking about this, uh, this, the grandeur of this place and how it, you know, this was once this like incredible place. And it turns out that since he's immortal, he was there when it was like this beautiful opulent city. And now because of his, you know, hundreds probably thousands of years later, he's standing in the ruins of this city. So, you know, Wagner is like, obsessed with this idea of the passage of time and things being lost to the eons and desolation and you know these like empty lonely spaces you know yeah i would agree you know i like i said i feel like this this prologue is in a lot of ways a, a manifesto for wagner's fiction as a whole you know he's setting up like um a recurring theme that he returns back to and uh, it's also a theme that I feel like um, authors like Ligotti pick up on as well, you know, and take kind of, you can, uh, you feel like reading that you're like, okay, like some, so many Ligotti stories deal with those same type of, you know, environments, you know what I mean? It's funny you mentioned that because actually there's a, uh, there's a uh, Adam Neville uh, book that came out. Um, it's called Weird, W-Y-R-D. Yeah. And there's, all the short pieces in there are just descriptions of places 
there um there's no real storyline it's like it's like this sense of these liminal spaces that were witness to this horrible thing you know and it's descriptions of those places and i i felt like that is is something that is like a, a big part of what wagner does yeah definitely and um yeah that that prologue just kind of sets that up you know this place that was once uh, a popping place now it's um kind of uh, fallen into disrepair and that's kind of where our two main characters are coming to a place just like that you know there's um what jerry and janet jerry and janet randall and yeah it opens up they're coming from uh from columbus ohio into the woods of tennessee and uh their ultimate uh destination is the crow's nest which is way in the middle of nowhere and you can really get a sense uh of the way they describe their their trip into the mountains where they start losing uh signal on the radio there's these impossible turns and it's almost like you have the sense of this like it's almost like this uh joseph conrad uh trip up the river that they're taking you know into yeah. <laughs> the heart of, of of nowhere you know yeah exactly i would agree yeah it is like this kind of joseph conrad trip uh, to the heart of darkness or something yeah and um yeah and yeah. it's uh, setting up to like some themes of like um um of them going into kind of they're like city people gone to this um you know middle of the forest kind of kind of place as well and then on top of that it's like um they're going to a place that used to be like this um, happening, like resort, you know, area back in the, I think the 1920s, you know, and used to be rich, where rich and famous people would go like to get away from, uh, from the city and everything, you know? Yeah. The guy, the guy who founded this place is named uh, David Reagan. And uh, he's like this wealthy industrialist. Uh, he's in, he was in the mining industry. And uh, he's the guy who built the crow's nest. And uh, that's, you know, he, a lot of nefarious things happened that involved him. <laughs> so we'll, we'll get into that too as, as we get, get on with the story. But one of the things we pick up on is the disharmony between Janet and Jerry. Like they're, they're taking this ride. They're kind of at each other's throats. Uh, Jerry uh, and his wife are just, at odds with each other and um we learn that there was an accident and uh janet's legs are injured jerry got out unscathed but they lost their son in the accident and uh that's kind of the origin of all this disharmony like that's the wedge that's between them and that's this whole trip is supposed to be uh was suggested to them for to try heal from all this like trauma that they've gone through. Yeah. And it's, um, it's interesting how, how he parcels that information out. Like you kind of are just kind of given it in bits and pieces as it goes on. Like, you know, you're never quite told exactly what happened, but you're, you know, even you figure out that, okay, she was like driving and they, that's why she would did something that caused them to get into this accident, you know, and it's like, um you also get a sensation 
that um to a certain extent she's like she's like super sorry for herself which you know like frustrates him you know what i mean like um and he blames her for everything and and is kind of like you know it's just like a bad situation well one, one of the things that kind of shows you his character at this point too is when they arrive at the crow's nest uh she needs like a walker uh she has trouble getting around and you can tell that he, he kind of holds that against her you know what i mean and that kind of for me that sets up this feeling of this guy is kind of a scumbag for being uh you know mean to someone who's like disadvantaged in that way you know what i mean well and, i think uh, um yeah he kind of explains it later on because he's saying that the doctor said that um she could try to she could probably be walking now if she tried but she doesn't try you know what i mean so i think he he's kind of like you kind of get the feeling at first he's just a scumbag who hates it but then you start realizing that you know he's frustrated with with her like kind of not wanting to get better you know what i mean but one of the things that wagner does is he's almost intentionally vague about some of this stuff too i mean i i definitely remember that part of the book part of me also was like maybe the guy should just be a little bit more understanding too you know you know what i'm trying yeah, to say exactly yeah I mean, it's yeah. not necessarily that he's like it's like um maybe if he was just a little bit less of a an asshole like he would you know just give her some time you know what i mean but instead he's like super impatient you know what i mean and gets and like frustrated with her you know rather and um the funny thing too is that when i first read the story this is one of the things like when you first read it because wagner's parceling out information he doesn't tell you that they got into an accident when he describes oh she's walking a walker so at first i was thinking are these old people you know yeah, what i mean that's what i thought too originally yeah yeah, I was, at first I was thinking that they're like an old couple who are kind of like bickering old couple who are going to this place. And then you start to realize, oh no, they're probably, you know, 40 or 30 or 40 or something like that. And you know what I mean? Like, uh, and there was an accident and stuff. But you don't find that out yet first. You, you kind of have to discover that information. And he very much holds her responsible for all the the bad things that are happening. Because, like, he also comments about how, you know, he was on this, like, upward trajectory in his company. And he was, like, you know, this guy with a future. And he blames her for the demise of his career and the loss of their son. And, you know, he's not interested in her anymore and all that sort of stuff. So it's just like this – a guy who's also just at the end of his rope, too, because he – he basically came to instead of healing, this dude shows up with a case of scotch too. And, yeah. <laughs> and he's like just gonna drink himself into oblivion to forget, you know, and, and this whole thing is like like uh more of like a um superficial attempt as opposed to actually trying to make things better, you know. Yeah, and I've met I've met people like this too um will do anything that they can to not take responsibility for anything so it's like you know he's saying that she's the reason why they lost everything but i mean probably not i mean you're not going to lose your job and stuff because of a car accident <laughs> you know what i mean like <laughs> yeah and, and it's um wagner does the, a really good job with that because it's uh the story is primarily told through the it's not a first person narrative but it's told through the the eyes of Jerry, and uh, 
And there's also a couple other things in here that roll up where he's kind of like a, like um like um like a inaccurate like in like you can't trust him in, in his his analysis and his points of view of I forgot what the literary term is but he's um you know one one of these guys who one of these characters who his point of view is skewed somewhat. Oh yeah, so you're um, saying you yeah. I'm trying term? to think what that word. Yeah, I can't think of it. <laughs> it's like I should have wrote this down, but but he's uh, you could tell that there's probably more to the story about him, his the, the demise of his career than just his wife, you know, and the accident. I get the and, feeling and, feeling that the alcohol is a big part of it. Probably, <laughs> probably the alcoholism, you know, would probably be a play a big part of him losing his job, you know, and his maybe weak character, you know. Well, it was probably after. See, here's here's probably how the chain of events go: is that, um, it was her. Maybe it was her fault that they got in the accident and their kid kid died. But then, um, he probably got upset about that and started like uh, drinking. You know what I mean? Which caused and his drinking caused him to lose his job. So in his mind, he's thinking that if she hadn't gotten an accident, he wouldn't have started drinking so much. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's like a, he's a justifier, you know, yeah. and, and he, he'll look for anything to enable his bad behavior. You know, there was a point where I thought that maybe his drinking was the cause for the son being killed in the accident and he was just projecting all this stuff on his wife you know yeah who knows um yeah I mean, they, they don't he doesn't actually wagner doesn't actually give any indication of that but i was thinking that that, that i was assuming the first time i read the story that that might be some kind of reveal but it never really comes up again yeah it doesn't yes so they go to the the crow's nest and um it's the way it's described is it's kind of like on the side of a hill and it's like um a few different floors basically like um kind of like you drive up to the top floor and then it's like overlooking like um side of a mountain or something and you go down you know what i mean mm -hmm. like uh which i've been to like um I've been to houses up here in the mountains that are that are designed that way where it's like the top floor is the one you drive onto and then up to and then there's like multiple floors that you uh, built into the side of the mountain down from the top floor. So I feel like I think, I've seen, I think I've seen stuff like that too. Yeah. And I think there's like, what I think there's like, I don't know, three, three levels or something. He says, um, I can't remember how many levels there are. It's like three or four. And um, it's kind of like, it's not terrible shape, but it's not great shape either. You know what I mean? <laughs> It's definitely seen better days, you know, like they kind of talk about how the furniture is like, you know, a little threadbare, like uh, it just, there's like a chemical toilet there, you know what I mean? Like it's like rustic, very rustic and definitely similar to our, our uh, prologue is our, you know, in, our introduction is like, it, not in ruins, but yes, in disrepair, seen better days. Yeah. Like I guess in this area there was a, a bunch of other like cabins and some of those are like falling apart but this one at least has been somewhat kept up over the years yeah uh and it's like full of crap too so it's like they get there and um they explore the place and he's they're going through all this um there's like stuff everywhere and um jerry at some point in the bottom level on the third floor there's like a bar and stuff and then there's like a room with a bunch of 
a bunch of other stuff in it. And the, in this room, he finds a um, a painting of a of a woman. Um, it's kind of like um, like kind of a bob cut, I guess. Like very, it's like a 1920s style painting of a woman uh, amongst the pines in the back back there. Uh, titled Renee. And they look at the date, and it's date. It's the funny part is it's it's painted by a guy named Pittman, which I thought was funny. Yeah, it reminds me of Pickman. Pittman, uh, yep. Yeah, um, but it's, it's Pittman, and it was painted in the fifties. And uh, this painting has like a real like kind of magical effect on on Jerry. Like he's like immediately transfixed by this painting, you know. Well, what's interesting about that, and, and I came up with that term, this is where Jerry really is the unreliable narrator, because uh, the effect on him is different than the effect on Janet. Like, Jer Jerry sees the magic in the painting and the sort of mystery of Renee and, uh, you know, the, the woods and, like, the, the darkness of the pines and everything. But then when Janet sees it, she's like, oh, my God, this is, like, the most awful, like amateurish like thing i've ever seen you know it's like someone did it in their like uh community college like painting class that they do at in night school or something like that you know yeah but he says he feels like he has this thing it's like it was a lonely picture she stood against a background of dark pines cold and lonely about her there was a delicacy about her and illogically an impression of strength the face was difficult its mood seeming altered at each glance, indefinable, sensuous mouth. Did it smile, or was there sorrow? Perhaps half open in anticipation of a kiss or a cry? The eyes, soft blue, or did they glow? Did they express longing, pain? Or were they hungry eyes, eyes alight with triumph? Lonely eyes, lonely face, a lonely picture. And that's where the, he thinks of a song that says, In the pines, in the pines, where the sun never shines, and I shiver when the wind blows cold. So that's where to get the title for the story. Yeah, yeah, and that uh, um, that that's a song. That's like a folk song that no one actually know knows who actually wrote that song. It's like that's... some Appalachian, like old school, like folk folk hymn. The, um... and, uh, yeah, yeah. I guess the earliest recording of it is by a guy named Doc Walsh. Okay, I haven't heard that. Is it called "In the yeah. Pines"? In the oh, you haven't heard the song? Oh my god, it's a song. It's famous, man. It's like uh, the earliest known recording is by this guy, Doc Walsh, released in 1926. Okay. Now, that's also right around the time that that uh, this drama with Renee happens, too. That's true, yeah. Subsequently, it, a lot of blues musicians, a lot of people covered it. There's Lead Belly recovered it, covered it, rather. That, that might be the more um, well-known version, besides from the Nirvana cover of the song and the Mark Lanigan cover. Of I didn't know that, that, I mean, I knew they covered like, um, some other lead belly songs. I didn't know they covered this one in the pines. Yeah. There's like, uh, one of these like MTV unplugged things with Nirvana covering it. But the first time I actually heard this song was on the, the first Mark Lanigan solo record. And, uh, I thought it was cool. You know, I, obviously I thought it was like some old like blues song, but it was, uh, and then, you know, of course, I went back, I found the Lead Belly version, and then I discovered that it's, um, no one knows who the author of the song was. Is it on the first one? Maybe, so I have heard it then, I guess, I just didn't realize. Is this... Yeah, the one, this, the record that Sub Pop 
put out by Mark Lanigan. Like is it, it's got Is it the winding like, sheet? I think so. That's the name of it. The uh, winding sheet. Maybe the song is do Maybe I could maybe I completely made that up. But I know I <laughs> I know that uh Lanigan oh yeah, okay. It uses the alternate version of the song, of the alternate title of the song. Oh, okay. What's the alternate title? Where did you sleep last night? Okay, yeah, that's one I know. I didn't know that was uh, also in in the pines as well. I didn't realize that. Yeah, it's uh, actually yeah, it, it's interesting the whole story with this song because there's an alternate title, and also some of the lyrics have changed over the course of time too. And in one of the lyrical one version of the song, the guy gets decapitated in it. Oh shit! <laughs> yeah, which like ties in later yeah. on in this story, right? That makes so, sense. Yeah, uh, yeah, I do know yeah. that song. I know, I know that that Nirvana cover that song. Yeah, where to? Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Sorry about that. I was vague about that, but yeah, there's two titles of the song, and that's that's the one. Okay, that makes that makes sense. And yeah, okay, they um, that's cool. I need to go and uh, find the. What's an original one? I'll have to, I'll, I'll play that on the, to close out the the episode. I'll play that song. Maybe that Mark Lanigan yeah. version. But um, yeah, it's cool. Then I was wondering where the, where the lyric came from, but it makes sense. It's very uh, appropriate for his story. Um, I just think it's interesting when he says it's like a lonely, lonely picture and stuff. And he's like, he's like feeling all these emotions off of it. And yeah, Janet just hates it. You know what I mean? And he's like enthralled by this this painting you know, literally like uh it's like a casting type of weird magic on him you know and that's kind of the beginning of the magic that's going on in the story and um but also there's like a lot of things just about like relationships and stuff and and two people who come to this kind of impasse in their lives and this story even though it's like a horror story and you know it's you know ghost story or maybe even a vampire story, actually. We'll see. But it's um it's so much about that man and woman thing that couples come to this point in a relationship, this point in a relationship where they're just like it's just over, you know, and that lonely feeling that uh Jerry's going through where just a painting he's open he's receptive to just something to make himself feel better you know and i think that's kind of like what's playing out with this painting and of course there's an enchantment in, involved in this stuff too which is drawing him into this world this uh you know drawing down him down this path too you know yeah which we kind of find out um you know and i do think it 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 does play into that um you know there's there's a lot of times in this in relationship where when it's at the end and you you kind of realize that like you know when you're like thinking about like you're like hate the person with so much that you're like you know looking at pictures of other people and be like oh man like you know like <laughs> so like where you can be in that point where you're like fantasizing about about just like a painting even you know what i mean like it's kind of like you know that relationship's over at that point <laughs> yeah, i just thought it was very interesting that janet was just saw the painting it was like it's like, you know, she's very critical of it and it offended uh, Jerry, you know, because he was like, oh, now that since you took your art class, you're you're this art critic now. And 
he got very offended by it, you know. <laughs> yeah, he got real mad. He's <laughs> and um yeah, he just grabs it, painting and like puts it on downstairs and they get in a big fight about the painting and stuff. <laughs> yeah. So really this kind of sets the tone for how how their time together is. They just basically she watches TV and he goes down in the basement and drinks and spends time with his painting of Renee, basically. Yeah, essentially, yeah. She's watching portable TV uh, upstairs, and and um, this is where you start. He uh, he goes downstairs and he's like getting like wasted, drinking like a whole bottle of of scotch and looking at his painting. And I, I guess like he starts smelling the fragrance of um, jasmine. But here's an interesting yeah. thing that I, I caught the second time is that he's smelling jasmine. And she says, do you smell something dead in here? <laughs> yes. Yep. That was it. Yep. And that's, once again, it's like the enchantment is is definitely working here because she smells rot and he smells jasmine, mountain flowers, you know? Yeah. And so they're experiencing two very different things. She's experiencing probably the, the reality and he's experiencing this kind of um, illusion as we find out, you know? Yeah. Um. So uh, he has to go and get some supplies. So uh, he heads down to one one of the, the sickest uh, names in the um, in the story, the uh, general store owned by Lonzo Pennybacher. Yeah, <laughs> which is like that's like such an awesome name, man. <laughs> it's like a very like kind of name that you would imagine some old timey like uh, like you know like what wild west movie or something you know what i mean <laughs> yeah and, and he's like that that archetypical character that just kind of tells the story like he lays out all the all the background of what's going on you know he tells uh tells jerry about um you know david reagan you know he's the guy who uh built the crows or you know built the crow's nest he was like this rich guy and he tells him about renee his uh, vixen-ish younger wife that all the townswomen hated because she was like this kind of city girl, you know? And of course, all the men loved her. She was beautiful. She had red hair. Um, Wagner's a p- partial to women with, women with red hair, I noticed, by the way. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she's like this really striking woman. That's uh, and it made me think of like the char- the women, the female characters in Lost Highway or something like that, like the uh, Patricia Arquette character in that. Yeah, definitely. She's she. Renee is um, he as um as what's his name? Uh, Pennebacher says it's um, she has a bit too much woman for David. <laughs> yeah, like yeah, she's uh, yeah, she's definitely kind of a femme fatale type of like. She seems like. She's a type of lady who likes to have a good time, and morality doesn't really play a play a part in <laughs> in her having a good time. You know what I mean? <laughs> exactly. It, it turns out that um, you know, she was also having an affair, or you know, the, the according to Pennybacker, with this guy Sam Luddle, and uh, you know, a guy probably more closer to her age. You know, and obviously she was probably with uh, with Reagan because of his money. And uh, this little guy was, you know, the guy she was running around behind his back with. Yeah, that is the line. Well, Renee was a little too much woman for David Reagan, they say. <laughs> I just thought that's very, like, 
I've you know I've met like old older people who put things that way. You know what I mean? <laughs> the um and uh, and he finds out that you know he finds out that Jerry's staying at the at the um the crow's nest, and he talks about the place. And Jerry asks him about the place being you know have you heard anything about it being haunted or anything? Because he was having these like illusions of of Renee, and I thought it was interesting that Pennybacker's like like his regional accent, like oh the hot the hat. Like he's referring to it as the hunt. Yeah. You know? The, um, yeah, because, oh, yeah, one thing that we kind of skipped over is what happened was one day Renee just disappeared. And, uh, and then the David guy was found dead. Like, um, they thought he committed suicide. Like, he crashed his car, essentially. And his, uh, head was nearly cut off, just like the guy in the, in the pines, one of the virgins, the more obscure virgins of in the ponds yeah and then we'll find out a, a additional detail about that a little bit later as well and uh yeah so he's like yeah ain't no height but it's like uh what do you call it um people have bad luck there that's what he says maybe it's not haunted but people have bad luck and uh he talks about the, the the painter he went up there that uh did the painting that he found and uh the Pittman guy and i guess this Enzo. guy Enzer Pittman. Yeah, Enzer Pittman. And um and uh, I guess he ended up killing himself there. Yeah. Alleg- again, allegedly. Allegedly. And then we find out another detail about that a little bit later too. <laughs> yeah. And also the the Sam Luttle guy disappeared and they just assumed that he was eaten by a bear. <laughs> right. Like- but then uh again we'll find out another detail about that death too from this other guy that he meets up with later, you know, so and all those details point to the final ending of the story. <laughs> yeah. One, one of the things I got a kick out of was when I'm um, going through uh, all the stuff and clutter there that's in the house. Uh, Jerry comes across a box filled with old weird tales magazines and yeah. you know, Argus, Argosy and like all these old school like pulps. And um He's talking to you. I was like, oh man, what crap all this stuff all is. You know, this is like the most poorly written garbage I've ever, you know, experienced. You know, I just thought that was really interesting, really funny. Yeah, I was going to, I had a note to mention that to you. It was funny because, and he says something about what, he says something about how people back then must have been like, um, like uh, simpler or something like that. You know what I mean? I, I don't remember what the word was, but. Yeah. yeah, it's kind of funny, but I feel like I feel like uh, Wagner putting the those those names in there was like his little nod to the to the weird weird fix, weird tales guys. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, totally. The um, let's see. So yeah, after he meets up with um, Alonzo guy. What's the next thing? Uh, he starts having more um, experiences where I think at some point he f- thinks that he sees Renee for a moment, right? What's that? I'm sorry to hear you. Um, yeah, he sees her. He sees Renee in the doorway. Like she's there for a moment and then disappears. Yeah, he That's- thought originally that he, it was because he was looking at, it was like an after image from looking at the, um, at the painting. And he just sees her in the darkness outside of the outside of the cabin. Yeah. So that's when she first like starts appearing to him like in this way. And up to this point, I'm thinking that this is like a ghost story, you know? 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and then the next big thing that happens is he finds like a big heavy locker, busted open, and he finds a uh, moldy notebook that's a diary of uh, Enzer Pittman from when he lived there. That's like that. That's that's uh, is a funny aside that um about diaries and photographs and stuff. And when I lived in Boston, I moved into this house with like a bunch of people and um, we had, you know, we used to practice in the basement of the, um, of the, uh, you know, the, the, the house, we had band practice down there. And I, in, in the room that I moved into in the closet, I found the diary of the person that used to live there. Right. <laughs> And then in the basement, in a box, I found a photograph of this girl. Like, fucking, I, I have the photograph still, and I oh, use really? it on like a, I use it on a record, like that I played on like years ago. And you know, of course, like I waited months. I had the diary. I'm like, what if they come back? You know, I wanted this box. There was like a box of stuff. It was like the diary was in this box along with like a bra and panties and like weird stuff like that like a woman lived there right in the room that i was in yeah and and i was like oh, let me just keep this box maybe i should come back for it or whatever you know never came back like so like i read i read a diary like <laughs> yeah like, it was like it's the creepiest feeling man it really is and it's like it's like one of the it's so uncomfortable but yeah but so that's our our, our man uh jerry is reading this di- the Pittman's diary now and he's like finding out about basically a parallel that he's experiencing with Renee, except he, his experiences were happening in the fifties. Yeah. His experience. Yeah. And, um, Pittman is experiencing the same things. He, uh, he sees, um, he sees Renee like, um, standing over him and all this kinds of stuff. And, um, And then this is where we get a little bit extra information where he mentions a guy named Reverend Banner. Yeah. And this is where, um, uh, here it is here. Still, he insists that when they found Reagan with his throat guillotined by the windshield, there wasn't a tenth as much blood spilled about the body as would be expected. Same regarding Luddle's death. Superficial scratches except the torn throat and only a small pool of blood. So it's like Banner doesn't believe it's bare explanation, but I don't get what. And then that's why where you don't know. So this gives you that. That's your first hint of oh, okay, something's going on here. You know? Yeah, yeah. And so, so uh, Jerry's reading through the the journal. The guy's having all his experiences with Renee. Like she appears to him in her corporeal form. Like she's more like more corporeal, like in in the descriptions in the um, in the diary. And then there's like uh, pages are missing, and then it just ends abruptly. Yeah, it so, ends with yeah. him saying something like, um, "She spoke to me, and and then she, I'm going to like touch her and stuff." That's what he says. Tonight, I'm going to touch Renee, and then that's the last. That's the last entry, and it's right. Yeah. It's like the day before they found him dead. You know yeah. what I mean? So. So Jerry decides that he wants to look up uh, Banner, who's still alive. You know, it's been probably like 20 years later, uh, I imagine. You know, just thinking about the timeline of the story, maybe it takes place in the early 70s. So Banner's like a, 
like an old one of those old men that probably can kick your ass. Do you get that sense? You know what I mean? Like he's like this dude who's like in his seventies, but he looks like he'd beat the shit out of you still, probably. Yeah. You know, he's yeah. Like, got, got it all together. He's got like very sharp, you know, he's sharp physically, you know, he's wiry, you know, he has a really good description of him, you know. Yeah, he's a alert man in the seventies or better, lean and strong without trace of weakness or senility. <laughs> it's like without a trace of weakness. I like that. His eyes were clear oh. and his voice still carried the deep intonations that had rained hellfire and damnation on his congregation for decades. <laughs> so he's like, yeah. yeah, like a real sharp, clear, like old guy. He could probably beat your ass, which probably looks yeah. like he's in his 50s or something. Exactly. Exactly. Um, but what this is like a really important part of, of the story because uh, Banner kind of assesses, he gives his assessment of uh, type of person that someone who's lost, you know, like you talked about, um, Pitt, Pitt, I'm going to say Pittman, Pittman, who is, um, he's like, Oh, he's one of these artistic types more prone to like enchantment or seeing things from a different dimension or like having these like op- the openness to seeds, the spirit world and that kind of stuff, you know? And, and, um, he also refers to Renee as, uh, as a woman of Satan. <laughs> like straight up like like yeah. she's like evil you know she's basically he, he assesses her as being evil like just an evil woman you know yeah and um and this is where we find out too that uh when they found Pittman's body there was not any real any any blood either you know right right and i thought one of the one of the most um the haunting things was he he kind of looks at Gary and like assesses him as being like like someone lost. You know what I mean? It's like you appear to be you seem to be to be lost. And he's talking about evil can't harm a righteous man. Yeah. You know, and he, he implies that Jerry might be a little bit weak of character at that point too. I like this line. He's like, yeah, you've got that lost look about you, son. Maybe you can hear that hellbound train a calling to you, but don't you listen to its call, son. Don't you climb on board. <laughs> You know, you know what that reminded me of is when, um, oh man, it's like in in, uh, in True Detective, when um, when Rust Cole meets up with uh, what's his name there, the the guy who's the uh, the meth cook, mm-hmm. and he's like, I, I can see like the you know the the void, the abyss in the corner of your eye or something <laughs> like that. It's like it's like so it reminded me so much of that. You know what I mean? Like you know, I don't know. Like there's a darkness in you, like this very ominous kind of foreboding like thing, you know? Yeah. And the way he kind of puts it really gives it that, I don't know, that Southern Gothic type of type of tinge to the story. You know what I mean? Like it's like that hellbound trains calling you, you know what I mean? Like it sounds like a, yeah. a Nick, Nick Cave line or something, something should have been a birthday party. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. You know, and w- Wagner's a, a mid a mid South sort of guy, man. He's from Tennessee. So this is like his 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 culture, you know. Yeah, and I mean that area is real eerie. You know what I mean? Like it's beautiful. Oh yeah. But it's definitely that whole Appalachians have a real uh, eerie, haunted feeling. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so right now we know that pretty much Jerry's doomed. You know, you get that feeling that things are not going to work out too well for him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's true, and. uh and this is when um, this is when Renee actually comes in and drinks some of his scotch, and um, 
talks to him. Like they have a conversation and and uh she kind of the way she talks, it kind of I like this part. It's like um chick uh good scotch so hard to get now, been saving this stuff in your cellar since before Volstead, or is it this just off the boat? And he says, Oh, the prohibition's been repealed for years now. She says, Sure, honey. <laughs> like Yeah. yeah. She didn't really believe him. It's like, say lover, you look all down in the dumps tonight. Care to tell a girl all about it? Like she kind of reminds me of um I'm hearing almost like Harley Quinn or somebody like that. You know what I mean? Like just kind of mm-hmm. voice, you know what I mean? Like <laughs> Yeah. No, totally. Yeah. So this is like kind of the climax, really. I mean, he, you know, basically professes his love to her, you know. And um, and once again, it's like he's a lost soul, man. And he's also one of the interesting things about his feelings for Renee is that he even comments himself that years in, in the past, he probably wouldn't even have given her a second look, really. He was like very much satisfied with his wife because she was like a perfect mother and someone who was nurturing and he would have considered uh, Renee to be a frivolous distraction, you know, but now she has taken on this role of like the, the, the object of all his desire. You know, you see that happen a lot with particularly guys going to like a midlife crisis. Like if they've been in a, you know, married for, a while like i've seen a lot of, i've seen people like with their marriages get broke up when they're in their you know late 30s early 40s because they like tired of their marriage and they meet some woman who's like makes them feel young and and whatever you know what i mean like usually a younger woman or just a woman who's like, a different type of woman and then they go crazy and fucking you know break everything apart for the sex or whatever you know what i mean that happens <laughs> yeah that's that's exactly what you know a long time, I don't know, maybe 10 or 12 years ago, I read this book called Sex at Dawn, which is about like relationships and all that. And it was about like basically that same thing where, where like the, you know, there's that old movie, The Seven Year Itch, you know, where it's like after like a seven year period or whatever, that's when things start, people start wandering apart. But I guess like part of this book was, was talking about um, Primal Man. It really, it, was, it wasn't really a relationship book. It was more about like, like hunter gatherer societies and their relationships to mating and that kind of stuff. And um, it was kind of, someone gave me the book because it was about how men can't stay faithful. You know what I mean? And it was like (laughs) kind of that thing, you know, it was like the guy goes for the younger woman, you know, he has regrets because like, it's kind of a mistake. And like, you know, let's say, um, he sees the virtues of the person that, you know, he had disdain for. And I don't know. It's just like, it, it really resonated. That part made me think about that book that I read. And, um, you know, so and as part of this thing, Renee is like, wants him to profess his love for her. And he's like, do you want Janet to be, you know, would you want her dead? You know, and all this stuff. He's like, I want her to die, you know? And, and then he passes out. He loses consciousness, you know? Yeah. And, um, yeah, so it's kind of it's a very climactic sort of ending, you know, to we're at the climax of the story, right? And um, one thing that before we get into the final climax, I wanted there, when you're talking about him being lost soul, there was a, a line that I really liked. It says, "The cool velvet soft night, pines whispering in the darkness, the sound of loneliness." And Jerry realized he had become a very lonely man, a lost soul adrift in the darkness of the pines. I think that really sums it up. Yeah. 
it's very eerie. so great man and, and it's like and even this kind of like purplish prose you know like that i mean i'm a sucker for that kind of stuff this is like exactly the kind of writing that i like too you know? yeah me too like and i love I, that 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 little uh you know paragraph really just stuck out to me i was like yeah that sums up like jerry in this uh in the story and yeah he's basically fallen under the uh the sway of of, Ren- of renee and yeah he tells her his life story and then the next night he you know talks about how he wants wants her to die and everything like that janet and all this stuff and um she he wakes up from his like little stupor and um he hears a shriek of terror is that a black a shriek of black terror shattered the stillness of the night and then he wakes up later and he feels something wrong you know and he comes up and he sees um janet and says her eyes were wide and staring her face set in a death grimace of utmost loathing insane dread whatever had killed janet had driven her mad with terror not been an easy death her throat was a jagged gash too ragged for a tear for the knife that lay beside her a barlow knife his and um and he says janet who could have done this thing and don't you know lover and he comes out and renee's there she's he says she's like laughs at him triumphant triumphal light in her eyes and it's like and then she like basically starts like uh taking her away you know he take she takes him away you know <laughs> and also she has blood around her mouth so yep he says knowing now her lips are far more crimson than scarlet trickled across her chin yeah all right and then there's also a comment about how she's a lich at the end yeah so it's like she pulls him out and um she leads him to this area in the pines and um it says uh um Yep, where there's a place he walked to earlier, and he had this like eerie feeling, like in the pines, and it was where the painting, where the painter had set Janet in the, was in this this like a clearing, right? And um, yes, until they came to a grove, Gerard, Gerard Randall now found familiar, where the darkness was deeper, where the wood whisper was louder and resonant of doom, where the pines drew back about a circle of earth in which nothing grew. Where tonight yawned a pit, and he knew where Renee's unhallowed grave lay hidden. And it says that the illusion of beauty slipped from Renee, revealed the cavern-eyed light and rotting silk who pulled him down into the grave like a bride enticing a bashful groom. <laughs> so it's, yeah, this uh, the lit a lich will appear again in this collection of short stories it's like yeah i feel like it's one it's one of um wagner's uh go-to uh character you know sort of monsters you know what i mean but what's interesting about this it's like she is a ghost but she's like a vampiric ghost yeah a leech a lich is like uh well it's kind of like um in i mean they're usually like a kind of like connected to the idea of like the draga or something like that where it's it, the body yeah. is reanimated um and you know but it's a, but it's also a spiritual thing as well so it's like i think um i think it but i do think i think part of what's happening is that she's able to cast some type of glamour over her her rotting self you know what i mean so she uses this glamour to bewitch him 
into thinking that she's this beautiful, you know, and that's why Janet smells rot and he smells Jasmine. You know, it's a, it's an illusion. You know what I mean? Okay. I didn't look, I, that, that's good. That's a, an interesting take on it. Cause I was thinking like she was insubstantial. You know what I mean? Like, I didn't think that she was like, uh, um, actually there. You know what I mean? I thought that she was, cause they, I don't know yeah. if it's in this story, but they talk about how, like, when a when you know there's a different dimension that the oh, actually this is in another Call of Wagner story where they talk about this, where there's like uh, the 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 soul goes to another realm, and there's like a door a passageway between the realms. I, so I thought that she actually was a ghost, a spirit that manifested herself. But I like your your idea better, where she what? actually is a reanimated body that is enchanting yeah then yeah that's that's what a lich is technically because it means like uh corpse yeah lich is a reanimated corpse so right uh, that's why i think it's interesting about it i was a little confused at the end because like when i mean i I know what a lich is but that's why i was like confused that he used that term at the end because to me it, it, it wasn't clear like to me at least that that's what she was but that your take your uh your description of it, I think, is is better than the idea I had, actually. So, yeah, yeah. Well, it's like, um, yeah, she's like a vampiric, you know, you know, reanimated corpse. That yeah, usually they have ability to cast a glamour and stuff like that. Uh, and I think maybe at times she's sending like a spiritual, like, um, kind of presence to him. But definitely at the end, she's a living being. You know that she's not a yeah. ghost at the end. You know what I mean? Right, right. So I remember, uh, I remember the liches from uh, from Dungeons and Dragons, actually. Yeah, and that's that's what's funny about the story, and and then the one in the the later story that this shows up in, is that uh, Wagner was kind of before. I mean, this was before Dungeons and Dragons, you know, and and lich wasn't really yeah. a, a super common term to use in the in this time. I think uh, Clark Ashton Smith used them. Um, Lich um, in a lot of his stories, and um, Robert E. Howard did as well um, yeah. a few times. And they're usually un, they're pretty much always undying sorcerers, essentially. So that's that's why I mean she's like able to cast an illusion. Is I he's very purposely using that lich term, I think, because it's, he's basically saying yeah she's like this kind of undying corpse sorcerer type of vampire, you know, type of figure. You know what I mean? Yeah, which I think is interesting. So that's in the pines, man. It's uh, ama- you know amazing. Yeah, I'll tell you the first time I read it, I really did not see where it went. I was I was just sh- I was shocked at the end. I was like, oh shit, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, totally. I um, this is one of the stories that I hadn't hadn't read actually by by uh, Wagner. Like, I would say like uh, let's see, Sticks, uh, River Nights Dreaming, or the Summer Ends. Like, I've read three of the stories already that are before that I got this volume that showed up in a different volume I have. And, uh, but I'd never read in the pines. I've only heard about it. And I gotta be honest, this is probably one of my favorite Wagner stories actually. Yeah. I think it's a great story. It, it, um, you know, like the first time you read it, you're kind of surprised at the end. I think the second time you read it, you start to realize that it was kind of telegraphed in a way, you know, and, and it kind of gives you like, um, 
you start to see more detail in it. I think, you know, like I, right. I think you're, it's kind of a thing where your appreciation for the story grows the second time you read it. Cause you start to like pick the piece together more of what's going on, you know? And, um, I think the, the other thing is just the atmosphere. And I think, I think it really touches upon real human emotions as well. Like that's a big difference between Wagner and say, um, the old Lovecraft. school, yeah, say Lovecraft <laughs> or Clark Ashton Smith or a lot of the old school weird fiction got weird tales era writers. Is yeah, they they generally didn't deal with like um, emotions too often. You know what I mean? Like except for yeah. terror or whatever, but not really like relationships and you know this kind of internal state of loneliness and stuff that's going running through the story. You know? Yeah, I feel like Wagner and like Ramsey Campbell are like second wave like weird fiction writers you know what i mean yeah definitely they're the guys who came up grew up reading the weird tale stuff and um you know i i think and they i mean some of those guys are still alive when they started writing you know um a lot of them were dead but you know a few of them i think might have been alive in the early 70s but um they kind of picked up the baton baton you know i don't think there was a lot of weird fiction writers in the 50s and stuff that coming out you know what i mean like uh like maybe aikman i think was uh maybe in the yeah robert time. aikman i think was yeah he's like a more of a, a tweener when it comes to that yeah yeah he was like in between those two eras so it was like he started writing in the 50s so he probably had a handful but i feel like um you know wagner and and ramsey campbell like are kind of like them you know american and british guys who kept it going you know what i mean and i think um i have to say like i mean i i, mean, I need to read more ramsey campbell like i've only i haven't read too much by him actually so something i need to dig into more but i really like wagner's writing like really is like does it for me like i really like it you know it, it, he's he has like like i think he's one of the stronger writers out of all these guys really just as far as like straight up like ability like technical ability you know yeah i would agree like i mean so far i've read um his brand mac novel i read his conan novel um and read started reading these stories you know and it's like um he's a like a great writer like he really is able to um give you and very like, in this story for example within the first like few pages of the actual story, you pretty much got to re beat on a uh, read on these characters, you know what I mean? Like, and the whole situation between them and everything, you know, like he's very yeah. economical in that way of like, and then he just kind of grows to that, that tension between, between the couple and stuff as it goes on, you know? No, definitely. I mean, I've only read his horror stuff and a I read a lot of the Kane stories, uh, which are great and um different like they're they're um obviously inspired by conan and maybe a little bit by elric too uh but it's it's his own thing you know and uh and it's it's it just there's a great stories but he has a bunch of like weird westerns and crime fiction and and all sorts of stuff that i haven't read you know yeah and um his Brand Mac Moore novel, I definitely recommend. It's really good. It like, yeah, it's very horror. You know, it's very dark and fuck and kind of and twisted. You know, <laughs> yeah. Well, Brand Mac Moore is definitely a, a super dark character. There's uh, 
with the worms of the earth is uh, a Bram McMorrin story. Yeah, worms of the earth and and um, his Bram McMorrin novel is is positioned as being a direct sequel to the to the Howard stories. So oh, okay. yeah. So it's set a little bit later after the events of it picks up from the events of Worms of the Earth. So it literally um, has some of the characters and stuff that showed up in Worms of the Earth. Right on. Yeah, and um. And that's how I kind of found out he has like a little section like writing about about those things and um in the book that I have and uh yeah he was like pub- he was getting all those Robert Howard books published in the eighties like the original stories and you know which is pretty cool. He also was an editor of a bunch. He had like um a publishing company too. It was a Carcosa Press, I think. And uh, and he had a bunch of stuff going on as far as like keeping up and coming writers like in print and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah I, I might be wrong about his publishing company's name, but I have to look it up. Yeah, I'm not sure. I think I just uh, this story like really blew blew me away, and reading it a second time it continues that you know just like the writing and it's just so evocative, you know, and uh, the feeling in it. Right on, man. So, like, next one up is uh, we got River of Night Dreaming is the next one. Oh, uh, where the summer ends. Where the summer ends. Okay, yeah. Okay, that's yeah. another good one. Yeah, another southern southern style uh, story. Again, kind of taking place in a um, kind of rundown, you know, uh, kind of falling apart type of uh, desolate area, you know, but in a city design. So, so, so my favorite places. Yeah, yeah, I think um, yeah, where the summer ends, and then uh, sticks is the one after that. Oh man, that's gonna be a good one. That's a great story. Yeah, I'm looking forward to yeah. to reading that one again. Totally, that's, that's like one of the few. I pretty much only read that one and um, River and Ice Dreaming before because they're in like collection, story collections that I have, you know. <laughs> yeah. All right, man. Well, that was awesome. And awesome, dude. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll reconvene. All right, man. Sounds great. Well, uh, right, have a good night. You too, bro. Good night. night.
Let it be captured in my